Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're going to check in with a special guest from UBS, who's the writer of a recent blog that takes a playful sideways look at a summer phenomenon from the movie business and cleverly applies some of its logic and rationale to market analysis. Have you completed the Barbenheimer experience this summer? Then stay tuned. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the programme Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas at UBS Global Wealth Management. Jason Dreho, welcome back to the show. You've written this really smart and funny blog entitled Marketheimer. I think listeners everywhere following the zeitgeist will know where you're going with that. But tell us what the idea of this one was. Well, unless you were living under a rock this summer, you're probably aware of the Barbenheimer context of like you know the movies Barbie and Oppenheimer that came out back in July on the same day. And for months leading up to it, it became almost like a social media phenomenon, sort of juxtaposing what were two very different sort of movie concepts, kind of one light and fluffy, and another one is like definitely kind of a very serious topic. So it took on a life of its own. And now I think it's even become a word that people use like Barbenheimer in the lexicon to describe two events that seem completely unrelated but are happening at the same time. Whenever you get something like that, you're going to naturally apply that to economics and financial markets. Are there things going on that seem completely incongruous and that to help maybe explain what's going on in the markets? So my twist on Barbenheimer is to call it sort of Markenheimer, where we look at situations where the data seems to be telling two different stories or you get two very different interpretations of the data. And that's kind of driving or influencing market action right now. Yeah, and it's really interesting, Jason, isn't it? Because we're used to talking you know, in times of economic volatility, but there's a funny kind of uncertainty that's just sticking around. And people are still in disagreement about pretty fundamental questions over you know, whether there's going to be a soft landing or a hard landing and so forth. And it is interesting to look at some of these market heimer events. And I thought with that playful backdrop, you looked at some specifics, which I thought were really, really interesting. Maybe I'll ask you about one or two. I guess as, a, as an introductory, let's look at consumers. What's the report? Are they in pretty good shape? Or, you know, we're still in higher rates environment. Others are saying, look, you know, eventually that pressure will be brought to bear and consumers are going to crack. Again, it's fairly conflicting, contradictory information, maybe. What's your take on that one? Well, so I think it's, first of all, it's helpful to think of these questions that I'm asking in this note in the context of the markets at the start of the summer where consensus was a recession. And then that really pivoted dramatically. By the end of July, the consensus view was soft landing and markets moved much higher based on that. And then we come into August and maybe it's people have more free time on their hands. Maybe that narrative has played out, but starting to kind of pick away and question that. And the consumer is one example where the data that we got just two weeks ago in the US on retail sales for July exceeded expectation. It looked like it was actually accelerating in July versus June. Some of the big retailers, Walmart, Target reported numbers that indicated still healthy consumer. So that's a really positive story. A week later, just last week, the data comes out from other retailers that are suggesting rising delinquency rates on credit cards. You're seeing consumers kind of trading down to less expensive goods, signs that maybe the consumer isn't healthy after all. So this is information that's sort of kind of contradictory that all came out within basically 10 days. So it sort of muddles the waters to some extent of like, is the consumer really healthy or not? My kind of take is that there are definitely pockets of weakness. And obviously, as interest rates rise, that's going to start to impinge more consumers. But the overall health of the consumer is still solid. I think it's just a little bit of questioning that assumption after everyone has really embraced it earlier in the summer. Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? I guess there are certain voices, certain authorities that people wait to hear from when there is uncertainty or disagreement. Fed Chair Jay Powell, 
certainly one, but some sort of hedging of bets, or I think as you phrase it, Jay Powell, skirted the issue somewhat when pushed on neutral Fed funds rate. Well, maybe before we get into what Jay Powell did or didn't say, why is this one another one that people fixate on a little? So Jay Powell gave part of the keynote address, or at least the most anticipated speech last Friday at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium. This is run by the Kansas City Fed. It's a fairly academic conference, but the Fed chair always gives a speech at 10 a.m. Eastern time when it happens in late August every year. Given what's going on with the Fed and other central banks raising rates, are they done or yet? A lot of focus on any sort of guidance that Powell might have given at this event. Going into it, there's also a lot of talk, well, given the strength of the economy that's been surprising this year, you know, kind of raises the question, is monetary policy actually that restrictive or not? To answer that question, it's almost a bit of a purely hypothetical because, well, restrictive relative to what? So this idea of a neutral rate, or people use the term R star, is meant to be some sort of measurable. At that level, Fed policy would be neutral. It's going to either cause the economy to slow down too much or heat up too much. It leaves it kind of right in balance. It's kind of a Goldilocks type of situation. The Fed and the market believes policy is above that level we just don't know where that level actually is. And so Powell could have given some sort of comments of, well, we think that level has shifted higher, implying actually policy is not as restrictive as we had previously assumed. You can sort of make that statement, but since no one knows this restrictive level or this neutral level, it's a kind of a theoretical and unobservable concept. If you kind of broach the subject, all you do is further fuel kind of debate in the marketplace without adding any clarity. So it's almost easier for Powell to say, and as he did, basically, we can't identify this with any sort of certainty, you know, and there's always some uncertainty of just exactly how precise or how restrictive monetary policy is. A factual statement, one that at the end of the day, the market sort of looked at and go, yeah, that's, that's probably right. And I guess a bit like that neutral rate question, another one which will really only time will provide the answer perhaps, but I'm going to ask you about it anyway, Jason, is about 10-year and 30-year yields. If they're higher, again, but it's a divisive, isn't it? Bad for growth or could they reflect a better growth outlook? And I suppose, like lots of these things, it sort of depends how you look at it in terms of what you're going to make of it. What we saw from mid-July to mid-August the yields in the 10-year Treasury and the 30-year Treasury went up 50, 60 basis points. You know, really big moves have now been hitting levels that they haven't hit in either 12 or 15 years. So like a whole sort of almost generation of economic cycles. Now, some of this has also happened at a time when we saw the U.S. government, the Treasury Department, announce that they're going to issue more bonds than was expected. We're hearing reports of deficits in the U.S. are running larger than people anticipated, even bigger than last year. At the same time, you've had the Bank of Japan announce they're going to stop or at least curtail how much bonds they buy to kind of contain interest rates. So there's an element there. You look at that and you think, well, these governments are running large deficits. They have to issue a lot of debt. You don't have central banks buying bonds, kind of trying to keep interest rates lower. Well, this is why interest rates have gone higher. Higher interest rates are going to be bad for growth. That's sort of the negative or very cautious interpretation of what's happened. The more constructive view is that well, this move higher in interest rates has coincided with the investor base, the market sort of deciding, you know what, a soft landing is probably likely, and actually long-term, the growth outlook is better than we assumed. If that's the case, the Fed doesn't have to cut interest rates as much next year and beyond as we anticipated. If that happens, well, that's natural for the 10-year yield, the 30-year yield to rise. So it's actually a sign of good economic health overall, not only today, but going forward. And if that's the case, well, then the economy can handle those higher rates. You know, again, this is something that we'll see in the coming quarters and couple of years of, is that the right view? But that's, you know, two different interpretations of what's going on. Some of it could view as this as a negative. Others could say, no, this is actually a sign of an economy that's actually doing quite well. 
Yeah, really interesting. And I've got a couple more that you were musing on, Jason, to ask you about. The next one's AI, which is a topic, of course, we, like many others on this programme, have been talking about a bit. And we are interested in this idea of these big mega trends. If we look at, at equities, I guess, to an extent, maybe the likely benefits of AI have already been priced in if people are looking at equities. Or is it only the beginning? Again, this is another one where there seem to be two sides to this particular coin. Ever since you know some of these AI stocks really took off earlier in the year, there's been a kind of this debate. You know, is it a bubble or is there a long way to go? You know, this is something that we'll know with hindsight, but it's hard to know in real time whether that's the case. You know, the the poster child for the AI story in terms of a stock investments right now is Nvidia, a semiconductor producer, and they guided earlier this year that the revenue in the second quarter was going to be better than expected. Last week on Wednesday, they actually announced their second quarter results, which even exceeded those already lofty expectations. So this is clearly a sign that this demand for this AI story is really strong. The market jumped 5% on the opening the following day, but then by the end of the trading day, it was basically flat. So it's like, well, if this is a really kind of a positive story, you'd think the market would have gone even higher. Instead, it was suggesting, no, the good news was already priced in. And other stocks that are sort of AI beneficiaries, at least the market perceives them to be beneficiaries, they actually sold off. So you look at that and think, well, is this a sign that all the good news is fully priced in? Has it sort of run its course? Or is this just the beginning and there's going to be years of sort of benefits from AI that will have economic benefits, earnings benefits? The challenge, I think, on this one versus the macro debates we've just discussed is that it's really kind of much more guessing. I think for any investor, it's hard to have conviction on it. And therefore, I think there's less arguments in kind of one way or another, like, is the Fed too tight or not? Same thing with AI. Could there be long-term benefits? Yes. But I think it's hard to have a lot of conviction on it. So I think it's less of a broader market mover than the overall sort of Fed macro story right now. Well, yeah. Let, let me ask you about another one. Uh, this is interesting. I don't know for people who, if they're listening to our program from the United States, this might be more of a kind of a curio, something of interest rather than a, a concern, certainly for financial markets. And that's the state of, of China. On this one, Jason, what's your call? I mean, some people are saying, look, you know, the whole economic model, it's in dire health, it's very urgent. And then there are more cautious voices saying, well, you know, actually that fear is overstating things a little. Where do you stand on this? So I think it's it's just hard to, to get a good read of like, what's the actual state of the Chinese economy right now? Because there are two conflicting forces. There are structural challenges that have been identified and flagged for, for China for years. You know, they've had high debt levels, especially in the property sector. They've been trying to diversify their economic model from investment-led exports to more consumption-based, and it's been going kind of slowly. So you have these structural trends. You also have demographics that I think it's well-documented. And, you know, China's an aging population. In fact, it's working age population will shrink going forward. All these things long-term are a challenge for economic growth and would suggest China will grow slower over time versus like the last 25 plus years. At the same time, there was expectations at the start of this year that China is going to, now that they're reopening, they're going to have this reopening boom, as we've seen in in the US and Europe uh, when they've come out of sort of pandemic lockdowns. That lasted for a quarter. And now for the past four or five months, the data has been consistently disappointing to the downside. And the policy response has been, certainly from the market's perspective, underwhelming. So now the question is like, well, how much is this just a kind of cyclical moderation to a still elevated growth level? Could this change if the policymakers actually decide to do something really quite significant? And that will get the markets kind of awake to this. Or is it now all these structural problems are actually really coming to the forefront? I think what you're seeing certainly in in the broader public discourse and the media is that China's model is broken. They're struggling to fix it. 
there may be elements to that, but I think it's a little bit over extrapolating for a really kind of complex problem. So I think for a lot of investors in the US, this could apply to, to other developed markets who don't understand the details. They also probably don't have a lot of exposure as investors to Chinese assets. So as they fluctuate around, they're not going to be directly impacted. And China, at least its financial system, is relatively segmented from developed market financial markets. So you add all this up, people are definitely looking at it. There's definitely kind of concerned. If anything, they might think, well, if China's slowing down, that's going to ease off global inflation pressures. That could be good for the U.S. So I'd say it's a little bit more of, at the moment, looking at it as a curiosity rather than a real concern that this could be a problem. It's almost less so than early in the year when there was the banking crisis and the concern was, will we have another sort of Lehman Brothers moment in the U.S.? Those risks, I think, were probably more heightened than could there be sort of contagion risks from China to the U.S.? I think that seems to be, at least at the moment, and rightly or wrongly, the market's kind of not too worried about that. Well, just a final thought, Jason, you wrap up your Market Heimer blog asking, well, looking at this question about investors and their general inclinations to sell the rallies or buy the dips. And I guess, actually, if we bring this back to where we started, the sort of in the summer of Barbenheimer under your Market Heimer notion, I guess maybe investors might be selling rallies and, buy, and buying dips because that's, that's, that's what the whole point was of your playful hypothesis. But what, what do you make on this? So it was definitely the case that the investors began the year expecting, as a consensus, a pretty broad consensus, that in the U.S. we'd get a recession that would start by the middle of the year, the stocks would go down, and therefore they were kind of defensively positioned. They would be more in cash, more in safe assets versus riskier assets like equities. Now, what happened is, turns out the economic data was much better than expected. We haven't had a recession and equities have gone up. So you had a situation where a lot of investors then were looking just to kind of catch up. They've actually kind of added to some of their exposures. And then because they were underweight, they've been looking to sort of buy dips. There just haven't been many dips thus far. That was true, I think, throughout the, the summer up until the end of July. August, it's been a bit of a different story as people have now been asking these questions, you know, debating, you know, challenging this kind of this optimistic view. And now as the markets sort of move higher, a lot of good news is priced in and therefore I'm going to sort of sell and take some profits right now. Now, there's certain type of investors who are doing that. And if you actually look at going back to what we discussed with NVIDIA, great earnings and results, it rallied 5%. And then throughout the day, the stock price sold. So I think that's kind of synonymous of a little bit of investors seeming to kind of sell rallies right now. At the same time, if you get any sort of sizable pullback for the markets overall, I'd expect their investors who've been sitting on a lot of cash, still have a lot of liquid assets they can put to work. They'd be looking to buy those dips. So there is a bit of a dichotomy that at the same time, they're kind of cautious about things getting too frothy. At the same time, if the market pulls back and creates an opportunity that's interesting, they're going to buy. Which again, going back to the, the analogy, kind of appropriate to be thinking sort of both sides in the summer of Barbenheimer. The ever-engaging Jason Dreo, wrapping up this edition of The Bulletin with UBS. Listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club and subscribe to Monocle magazine. You can also follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. As ever, you can discover more and find out how UBS can help you at UBS.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.